Thank you, Barry. Quick shout out to uh, just last week, I was uh, in the building but was back at We Worship and uh, got to spend my time during Marty's sermon, so I didn't get to hear that, that part of the teaching when Marty was here, but I was back there uh, with our We Worship kiddos, two through four-year-olds, and I just want to give a quick shout out to anybody who does that. I don't get to do that very often. And uh, those kids, when they came in, and, and the guy that they usually see standing up here was standing in their room, they kind of were like, what? What are you doing here? And why are you talking to us? And it, but it was awesome. And it was so much fun. And uh, they pay attention to me about as well as anybody does. I think I had about, it kind of was like about 10 minutes in. I, I think I got a good seven minutes of Bible study with them. And then it was a free-for-all. And then I had an idea. I found this frog puppet. And I thought, well, we'll just reiterate the frog puppet uh, and go back to the Bible lesson with this frog. And that failed miserably. Um, but anyway, anybody who's ever done that, thank you for what you do to teach our kids. And uh, I can't wait till maybe the next time we have a guest preacher, I'll, I'll jump back there and do that again. That was a lot of fun. And, and maybe practice my frog puppet uh, a little better. So anyway, glad you're all here. We are in chapter 13 of uh, the story, First uh, Kings chapter 11 today, uh, the story of Solomon. Well, it doesn't matter how you feel, right? When there's a fact, it's a fact. And one of the facts that's not debatable is that airline travel is the safest form of travel, bar none. And it's not even close. Traveling by air only causes 0.0 deaths for every billion miles traveled. 0.07. Doesn't even hardly register. You compare that conversely to travel by car, and by car, there's 7.28 deaths per billion miles traveled. The most dangerous form of travel, and it's not even close on the other end of the spectrum, is those who ride motorcycles. For every billion miles driven by motorcycle, there's 212 deaths. Now, what's funny about that is you've probably all had that experience of getting on an airline makes you nervous, but getting in a car you don't even think about. Or maybe even some of you getting on a motorcycle you don't even think about. But there's something about air travel that even for the most experienced of us, every once in a while through turbulence or when you pull up that little flight tracker on the video or on your phone and you notice, I'm over a lot of water, right? You just get a little bit nervous. Now, there's probably a million different reasons for that, but one of the reasons that air travel causes a little bit of consternation and anxiety in us is that when a plane goes down, we know all the details. We don't hear about car wrecks or motorcycle wrecks that often. Maybe you hear about them. But when an airline goes down, when a passenger plane has a tragedy, we not only know why, we know how, and we know every little piece that went into it. Every detail. And the reason for that is because of this thing, the little black box. Of course, the little black box is that indestructible little piece of equipment that tells us everything about what happened that day when there's a tragedy. It tells us every little bit of information that you could ever want from telemetry to radio communication, in-flight data, to even the recordings of what is said inside the cockpit. 
That's why this black box is so important. When a plane goes down, that's the one thing that people from transportation safety boards are looking for. Because in that is all the details. And in the details is not only the importance, it's the why and the how. Today, we're going to get into the black box. We're going to get some details, and we're going to get the whole story. Just like from an airline, the black box tells the whole story, we're going to get the whole story on King Solomon. We're going to open up his life, and we're going to get to see the insight into the one who's called the wisest of kings, but who becomes a fool. But first, before we get into that, I want us to remember how we got here. The story begins with goodness. It begins with rest. It begins with creation that is partnered between the creator and the created. Mankind, man and woman, living in harmony, living in mission with God to rule and reign and subdue creation with God. But Solomon's ancestors are living post all this goodness. They're living in the fallen soil of the world. And his ancestors of generations past were part of the answer. As a wandering people, they were a people who held on to a promise. A promise given to the paterfamilias of the whole thing, Father Abraham. A promise that included blessing. The story really gets rolling in Genesis 12 of how redemption will come about. When God promises this Abraham that he's going to bless his family and through his family bless all people on earth. Of course, to oversummarize the story, there's a lot of ups and downs between Genesis 12 and where we're at in 1 Kings 11. There's a time of slavery. There's a time of rescue. Then there's a time at Mount Sinai where the people get an identity as a special possession, as a people who will restore that blessing. Then there's a time of leadership. Failures and more failures. Eventually the story gets, as we summarize very quickly, to a king that actually kind of, kind of gets it. The greatest king in Israel's history. He unites the borders. His name is David. He brings together the nation. He follows the covenant as best that he can, although he has his times of difficulty as well. And then he hands over the kingdom to his son Solomon. Solomon inherits at the first of this story the best of times. He comes to power during the easiest, easiest of times. What money consider the greatest time in Israel's history. The nation is united. They're allied on all fronts. And the people are living in freedom. Solomon, or as I prefer to call him by his Hebrew name, Shlomo, which is great, great, great name. Shlomo, that's how it's pronounced, honestly, is a name that means bringer or bearer of peace. This Solomon is young, he's wise, he's brilliant, and he's wealthy. He's been blessed and gifted by God. But there's something funny about this story. Because no matter if you've heard this once, or if you've heard this story many, many times, there's something that happens to you as you read the Solomon story. 
He's wise and just in the first pass. He's a hero. Maybe you see all the highlights. But as we get into the story more and more, as we open up the black box and get the whole story, and we read Solomon's story for a second or third or fourth or 50th time, what you begin to see is that this king is not always very kingly. Or maybe better said, this king is not very godly. And he's not always wise. He seems to sometimes be the fool that he warns against. So what we're going to do this morning is take a look inside the whole story of Solomon. Inside the black box to hear not just one take, but how the text will bring out multiple takes on Solomon. This wise fool. Let's pray together. I want to pray over this teaching this morning that God will lead us and that we'll hear what he has for us today. God, you are good. Your mercies endure forever. And as you have corrected us and aligned us back with Jesus millions of times, we pray for that grace again. We pray that we will see not only in Solomon today what we shouldn't do, but what we should do. That we'll see in Solomon today not only his wisdom, but also his folly, that we'll get the whole story. And from that whole story, we will be blessed. Father, we pray for other believers in our area, believers today. We've, we pray for other churches sometimes, but today I want to pray specifically for people who believe in Jesus, but yet don't fully follow him or don't and aren't connected with a church. God, we pray that they will find church home because we know that you have made the church for a reason. You've given us a mission and you've called us into the kingdom of God to display that kingdom. And God, we want to give that gift to this world as you've given it to us. We love you, Lord. May you bless us now as we dig into scripture. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So here's what's going to happen. As we open up Solomon's life, I really want you to pay attention. It's not going to be very subtle but there's going to be an argument that's going to happen in the text. The text is actually going to argue with itself. And there's some wisdom when you actually start to realize that that's what the text does a lot. The text will speak one way of Solomon and then turn around and speak another. So we're going to get phrases like this. It appears first in 1 Kings 3.3. 3, a good news about Solomon. Where the text will say, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given by his father David. Good news. But then in the next line, the text will also say, he did all this good except, and that's a big except, kind of like a big but, but a big except, that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. It's interesting. He followed David, which would be good, but at the same time, he was also doing this other stuff. And then, again, in the next chapter, we read phrases like this as we open up the black box. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety. Everyone under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Again, great news. Solomon and the economy he built for Israel allowed everybody to seemingly have safety. Everyone had their own vineyard. Everyone had their own fig tree, their own crop, their own income. But what's interesting is that in the same chapter, just 
19 verses before this, there's this little insight into Solomon's cabinet, his ruling authorities, where you hear of this guy that he appoints, a guy named Adoniram, son of Abda. And his job, he was in charge of slave labor, forced labor. So the text tells us on one side, everybody had what they needed. But then before that, there's this great big what with a question mark. Israel is practicing slave labor? If you've paid attention to the text, isn't that something supposed to be of their past? Wasn't that supposed to be something left in Egypt? But yet, here's Solomon appointing someone else to rule in order to rule and subjugate people. It's worth noting that the word here in verse 6 for forced labor is the exact same word used in Exodus 1 for slavery. It's the same word. Perhaps the text is telling us a different story than what we see at first glance. Perhaps not everybody had their own fig tree safety and vineyard. We continue. Let's keep unpacking this. Hang with me for just a little bit. In 1 Kings 6, we hear this, that in the 11th year of the month of Bool, the 8th month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. And Solomon spent seven years building it. Wow! A building project that took seven years. Can you imagine? Yeah, we've seen I-40, right? Right? We're wondering if the highway out here is going to take seven years. Amen? <laughs> right? Right? Now that's great, seven years to complete this great and glorious, wonderful place for God's people to come and worship. Solomon's biggest and greatest ever accomplishment, right? Except that in the next verse, 1 Kings 7-1 that we often miss because it's in the next chapter, the text tells us, well, it took Solomon 13 years, however, to accomplish and to complete the construction of his own palace. See what's happening in the text. Solomon, what are we to make of him? Maybe the writer's just stating facts, or is he trying to make a point? Maybe you're thinking, well, maybe the text is bipolar and can't figure itself out. Or, probably a better question is, what is the text actually trying to teach? What are we to lean into? Are, do we, are we to admire Solomon, or are we to be suspicious of him? Well, let's keep reading. Because we not only get this insight, not just from First Kings kind of having this back and forth on the Solomon figure, we also get insight into who Solomon is when we go back to Moses and see his warnings about how kings will treat his, their people in Deuteronomy 17. Check this out. Deuteronomy 17, 14 and 15 says this, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and take possession of it and settle in it, you will say... Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Now, we know that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 8, right? We talked about that several weeks ago. Verse 15 continues. It says, here Moses says to the people, When you do that, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, no one, uh, one who is not an Israelite. All right? Solomon, he checks the box there. 
Except we read in 1 Kings 9, 11, that Solomon, yes, he is an Israelite and rules over the people, but here's what King Solomon does. King Solomon gave 20 towns in Galilee to Hiram, king of Tyre, because Hiram had supplied him with all the cedar and juniper and gold he wanted. So Solomon goes against Deuteronomy 17, 15 in a treaty with Hiram, king of Tyre, and says, you know what? You just go ahead and rule over the Galilee. Let's keep going. Verse 16, back to Deuteronomy. Let's go back to Moses. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get, to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Now here, as we start to unpack, and what we're doing again, just to kind of get everybody back on the same page, is we're unpacking that black box. We're seeing all the details of Solomon's life. And here, Moses tells the people, don't have a king that goes back to Egypt. In fact, he gives them a direct command. You are not, as a people, ruler or not, you are not to go back that way. Why? Why does Moses give this command? Well, I think the command is here is because he's teaching them that you're not only free from the land of Egypt, you as a people, as a special possession of God, are to be free from the way of Egypt. So don't turn around. Don't go back that way. It's not like they couldn't go on vacations there. This is more of a ruling and a command to say, don't pick up the way of empire, of Egypt. But what does Solomon do? 1 Kings 10, 26. Solomon, and this is, I've got, these are several verses where you've got the ellipsis there. There's some things I've combined. You'll need to read that whole section. But here's what Solomon does. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Where did he get the horses? Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. 14,000 chariots, or 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, and they come from the place you weren't supposed to return. It's interesting that Pharaoh chased Israel out of Egypt on chariots and horses. And now Solomon is sending people back to say, you know what, we would like some of those too. Jerusalem the writer is telling us, is becoming a lot like Egypt. And then one more as we open up the black box, and there's many more, but I'm going to just give you one more. As in Deuteronomy 17, 16, Moses also warns about the king. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate, accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. This is the warning about wealth and wives. And Solomon comes along, right? And we find out in 1 Kings 10, 14, that the weight of his annual income that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Now that's the first time this ever appears. Little side note, let me make a little side note. Preaching a different sermon here. Those of you who like to misinterpret the book of Revelation, you cannot uh, interpret 666 and what it means aside from this text. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. It's the the number of man. 
Trusting in man. Okay, that's all. I'm done. All right. <laughs> Back to the sermon. All right, so he accumulates all this wealth, 666 talents. You know how much money that is? It's a lot. I'll give you the details on that. I'll give you more than the details. How much gold is he accumulating? All right, a talent. Best we know is between 75 and 100 pounds. We'll go on the low end. We'll say a talent is 75 pounds. So the gold right now, I checked on, I checked on Thursday, gold was trading at $2,026 an ounce, right? Pretty good. So each talent, 75 pounds of gold, would be about $2.4 million. That's one talent. He's bringing in 666 talents. So Solomon is making, multiply that out, he's making $1.6 billion a year in gold. Okay? That's pretty good. Teenagers, if you want to know this, that hourly wage, eight hours a day, that's $547,000 an hour. Okay? All right? You want to be a lawyer? That's a little high even for lawyers. Okay? $547,000 an hour. This guy is bringing in what? An enormous amount of wealth. And you know why the, the text is telling us the number 666? Because it's the number of man. It's when we trust in ourselves to build what God should build. Right? You with me? And Moses already warned about this. Wealth and wives. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And what did, what did Moses say? They will lead you astray. And his wives led him astray. 700 wives, 300 concubines. But the point is not only the number. I think the text is trying to say the point is the effect. Solomon has lost his center. He's turned back from his true north. The text says his heart was not fully devoted. That's the black box. The whole story is not just, yeah, Solomon was wise and he wrote some Proverbs and gave us Ecclesiastes and he did a really cool thing where he, was, where he figured out whose baby was actually belonged to which lady. The text is actually telling us a much bigger story and the question we've got to then ask is then, what is it actually telling us? Well, I think the text is not just only about a wise man who once turned his back and turned foolish. I believe the text itself is the wisdom, not the man who was supposedly wise. The text is the wisdom. In Solomon, the text is then challenging us when we read Solomon, we should be looking deep and asking ourselves what I believe to be the question or the point. And the point is not found in Solomon's life. It was found way back there in Deuteronomy 17. In the warning from Moses, when he says to the people, don't go back that way. Don't go back that way. I believe Solomon's message 
what it should press in on us, what it should do to our hearts, is to ask the question, what happens when we go back the way we've came? Solomon is a figure who has everything all of us as Americans could ever want, right? I mean, who doesn't want $1.6 billion a year? Right? Anybody? <laughs> right? We all think, I would handle that correctly, right? If I just won the lotto, I would handle it correctly. Studies show you wouldn't, <laughs> right? I, I mean, and you say, well, I'm the exception. Studies show you you're not, right? Well, I am. I'm a preacher. No, you're not, Jake. Shut up, right? You're not. That's some, that has something to do with this. See, Solomon has everything that we could ever want, wealth and wisdom and success. He's living the dream. But slowly, his heart hardens. His great wisdom that once represented a divine gift to the nations becomes an instrument of self-service and self-exaltation. He went back the way Israel had come. And I want us to deeply think about that question. What happens when we go backwards? Solomon in his story reminds us of the trials and the loss of mission and the circumstances we bring upon the world when we forget who we're supposed to be. What happens when we become unfaithful to the vows we've made to the Lord? What happens when we become the embodiment of all things that we are supposed to be against? What happens in the church when we say, well, we're not like the world, but then the way we treat each other looks exactly like the world? What happens when the church, who's supposed to be on mission, decides that their mission is to make the church happy? What happens to the church as a people who are forgiven forgets to forgive? We go back the way we came. Instead of following Jesus and carrying our cross, we end up dropping our cross and not really stopping because you really can't stop. There's no such thing as a static relationship with God. You're either growing or you're regressing. I don't believe there's a stopping point. But Solomon begs those questions. But it also begs the questions personally inside of, of me. And I hope inside of you when you see this truth that I am often a wise fool. Because often there's times in my life that I go backwards. And I let the attachments of this life be more valued than my attachments to Jesus. Or when I want it my way, and instead of serving God, I become a follower of Jesus that wants God to serve me. That's Solomon's story. I don't want to end on the negative, though. I want to end on what happens when we faithfully follow. Not when we turn around and go backwards, but when we look forward. And we go, what is God calling us to next? What is God 
moving us into as a people? What's the next step of transformation? What's the next step of my ongoing uh, change and service and love? What's the next step of the fruit of the Spirit coming out of me? So the question isn't just what happens to us when we go back. The question is also what would happen if we were wise and faithfully followed daily? And this weekend I was with my in-laws who I love and who I appreciate. And Allison's dad, Lyndall, told an amazing story that I'm going to share with you all this morning. And now Lyndall has some, I, I, I got I to qualify this. Lyndall's got some rough edges. Amen, Allison? That's right, okay. He's got some rough edges. When I asked for Allison's hand in marriage, he scared me to death. I was like, I, I may want to back out of this thing right now. Never mind. <laughs> but I didn't, and I'm glad I didn't. But I've come to grow and see that, that what Lyndall brings to the table, even though he has some rough edges, is he's faithful. He's incredibly faithful, and he's determined. And so this past few weeks ago, he got a call from one of his family friends, a guy that he was a fireman with years and years ago. He stopped being a fireman when you were in first grade, I believe, Allison, first or second grade. So it's been a long time that he used to be co-firefighters with this friend he has named James. But he stayed with James and he stuck with James his whole life. James has been what Lyndall says is my brother. Now James, though, has never been a follower of Jesus. He was hurt early on in his marriage. He had a wife who was unfaithful to him, and he gave up on marriage, but he didn't give up on having a lot of girlfriends. (laughs) He wasn't necessarily following God in a lot of the choices in his life, but Lyndall and him kept up through the years of Lyndall doing, being a truck driver and then making toilet paper for Kimberly Clark as Lyndall did different things and James did different things. But a couple weeks ago, James received word that in his, now in his 70s that he has a very, very aggressive brain tumor. And so James, one of his kids, one of his adopted kids, called and said, Dad wants to see you. Called Lyndall and said, Dad wants to see you. And Lyndall's always called him, he's my brother. So Lyndall immediately got up. He went to his house, but before he left, he took his Bible. And he walked in, and James saw him standing there with his Bible, and he goes, well, I know why you're here. (laughs) And Lyndall goes, you better believe it. And so they walked through some scriptures together, and James explained how just since this diagnosis of this horrible brain Tumor, he had had some long talks with the Lord and he felt like he was really good with the Lord. He felt like he had made some headways and had some discussions with the Lord like he had never had in his life. And then he looked at Lyndall and Lyndall said, well, I think there's one more thing you need to do. You've never been baptized. And you need to go all in with Jesus. And instead of James going, ah, we're good, You know what James did? James was excited. He goes, thank you for coming by. I'm ready. Let's go. And so they went up to a church building. And they had to help him get into the water. And Lyndall, who's been lifelong friends with this guy, through wisdom and through trying to live out wisdom with this friend, 
got to see God's work. And got to see the wisdom of God bring this to fruition and got to baptize one of his great friends. Isn't that beautiful? And see, that's, we not only get from Solomon the wisdom of what not to do and not to go back that way, but we also, I believe, get the wisdom of what to do. To not be a wise fool, but to be wise and put our hands and put our lives near the heart of God. Because God is going to take care of us. And God would have taken care of Solomon. Solomon decided to do it his own way. So our invitation this morning is this. If you've gone backwards, what's so amazing about the Lord is that when you stop and turn, he's right there. That's what repentance is, metanoia. Shuv in Hebrew. When I shuv, I stop and I turn. Boom, there's the Lord. Because he chases. And then we get to start over. But also, if you just need this morning, not only that, to turn back around, we want to pray over you because we all need to turn back around from time to time. But we also want to pray over and be a church that says, you know what? Let's continue to lift people into the wisdom of God and lift up the lost and lift up the hurting and reveal to us all the great things that God's doing around us. Because, yeah, bad things happen when we turn backwards. But thanks be to God that great things happen when we faithfully follow. Whatever you need this morning, we've got some elders out in the foyer as well. Uh, But we're here for you down front. Let's stand together and let's sing. You are forever, Lord of the ages, God before time. Ye are my purpose, Lord, everlasting, reigning on high.